Around the world, more than 80 women have accused Peter Nygaard of crimes ranging from rape to sex trafficking. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. He exceeds anything that I think our world has seen so far. A pattern of predatory behavior spanning half a century. Nygaard denies it all. But now he faces criminal charges. If this were a poor man, he would have been in jail decades ago. He is hid in plain sight. Evil by Design, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Stephanie Skanderis in for Brent Banbury. This is Day 6. The school year starts next week and there is now a new policy surrounding names and gender. Parents must be fully involved. Parents do have rights. In a home that is not safe, a child can pick up on that. Outing children as part of a political gamble is violent. When parental oversight and student safety collide in the classroom, that's coming up on Day 6. Today notes of ashtray. It can be very intense. How wildfire smoke challenges BC wineries. The Slinky at 80. She was the one who came up with the name Slinky. And the woman who made it famous. And right-hand man to the gods of rock. All these people, they all had a great sense of humor. Tony King on his life serving rock and roll royalty. All today on Day 6, the Saturday School of Rock edition. I don't think it's any of the, like, any of their business as to what, like, name somebody goes by at school if they do go by a different one at home. This week, hundreds of students, parents, and educators rallied in Saskatoon to protest a change in policy around the treatment of LGBTQ youth in schools. The new policy will require schools to get permission from parents if a student under 16 wants to use a name or pronoun that's different from what appears on their legal documents. You Are Pride, a center for sexuality and gender diversity in Saskatchewan, has filed a legal challenge against the province, and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association says it believes the new policy violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Our read of the policy, um, as it's written, is that it is specifically targeting trans and gender diverse students. So that is a discriminatory impact that it only applies to them. This policy change in Saskatchewan echoes the New Brunswick government's recent changes to Policy 713, a set of guidelines originally designed to protect LGBTQ students. New Brunswick's child and youth advocate says the updated policy violates the Charter and the province's Human Rights Act. An Angus Reid poll released this week found that nearly 80% of Canadians say parents should be informed if their child wants to use a different name or pronoun at school, and that 43% say the decision should require parental consent. Sade London is a non-binary high school student in St. John, New Brunswick. They were among the hundreds of students who staged protests against the province's review of Policy 713 in May. Sade, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you so much, Stephanie. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you doing? Not so bad. Sade, first of all, what does it mean to you to have people in your school community call you by the right name and pronouns? When I tell you it is the most affirming thing ever, I'm so excited to go back to school to know like I get to exist as Sade, which is a chosen name of mine, and get to also be called they and he and not just she is so exciting. I see myself in that expression, and having that validated is great. Can you help us 
understand why would some students use different pronouns at school than at home? When I started using um, they and he pronouns as well, uh, I was scared my parents wouldn't understand right away since it was a very new concept for my family to um, be genderqueer. And um, being able to have like a school first before coming out at home really gave me that place to make sure I felt like affirmed in that identity and how I want to be referred to using those pronouns before like giving my family like a shock to the system. Mm -hmm. Something we've been hearing is that some parents who are in favor of policy changes, like the ones in New Brunswick or Saskatchewan, say that they feel they have the right to know what their kids are doing in school. What would you say to them? Or what would you say to that argument? Kids themselves and these trans kids in this situation know the people around them that are safe more than anyone. They know if their parents are a safe place to go to or if they feel comfortable talking to them about that sort of situation. It's ultimately up to the parents to create that safe space for their kids to be able to tell them these things. And maybe school does that first and maybe friends does that first and creates that safe space first before parents do for kids, which is an unfortunate reality. But you shouldn't have to force your kid to tell you about these things. They should want to come to you because they think of you as a safe space. We've been watching these discussions happen. First, New Brunswick, now Saskatchewan, and then similar discussions going on now in Manitoba and Ontario. What does it feel like watching that happen? I'm not super proud that my province was the first to do it. And the fact that there's a chain reaction to it makes me feel almost guilty that there's so many other provinces almost endangering these kids of outing them. And outing is a very serious process. If parents that aren't very accepting to their trans kids find out their kid is trans and is trying to live out their true life at school, they can get very angry and it can end in very serious situations for the kids. I've seen it before. It's a very sickening situation. And the fact that that's being spread to more than my province is, it makes my stomach turn. What do you mean guilty? You said you feel guilty, but what (laughs) what do you mean by that? I don't, I see a lot of openly trans kids around my province and it, I have a lot of pride in them because I know it's very difficult, but the fact that people have seen that like open like queerness and have reacted to it negatively in the way that like policy 713 has had changes, it makes me feel like being so openly queer has caused that for other people and it makes me feel like we need to hide, but it's the complete opposite. I'm so proud of myself and my community. These kids have such a weight on their shoulders. It's so much to process at such a young age, but we just want to express ourselves like everyone else. And it feels like our fault. When you look at, you know, your own school system, how do you think your teachers are going to deal with, with this situation? I know a lot of teachers take pride in the fact that they can have a safe space for kids at school. And it's going to be very difficult to see a lot of them have to decide between like, am I allowed to call this kid this name that they really, really, really want to be called? But I can't because it's a transgender issue or a queer issue and a gender issue. Having to decide that and 
putting that weight on their shoulders too to decide if it's okay it it hurts my heart because I know so many of them just want to be an accepting space yeah well what are you afraid might happen as a result of these policy changes students under the age of 16 that change their name needing parental consent to change their name in a school setting is it's it hurts knowing that so many kids won't be able to live out that reality or healthily express themselves that way just because they happen to be genderqueer or trans is so upsetting. That's not human rights. You get to express yourself. That's what Canada is for. I'm not seeing that in these policy changes at all. And how do you think that will make kids feel? Like, Do you know anybody that you think will end up going back in the closet? Absolutely. Oh, my God. There's so many kids that even identify as cisgender now that have reached out to me about wanting to use different pronouns or different names. And we're hoping to do so at school within their GSAs or just within their friend groups or maybe in certain specific, very safe classrooms. But the fact that they can't do that anymore without their parents knowing that there might be something up with their gender, that they might not be cisgender. The fact that they don't have that space that I had and that so many of my trans friends had that have grown to beautiful people that really can express themselves and feel very secure in themselves. The fact that some kids won't get the same experience because of this policy change makes me more upset than anything. I don't want to see anyone younger than me experience that thing. And it just feels like we're going backwards. So what would you say to the politicians who are proposing these changes? Listen to the kids. You're doing this to protect the kids. Listen to us. We're much smarter than I guess we seem. We know what we're doing. Talk to us. Communicate with us. Just listen to us, please. And what about the students in Saskatchewan? You've kind of been through this now. Do you have any thoughts to share with them, students there who might be concerned about what all of this means for them? First of all, the students there, good luck going back to school. I know it can be a hard thing. Proud of you. But um, that was a clap. But um, use your friends, use your teachers that you know you can talk to, your trusted adults, your siblings. Continue learning to figure out yourself until we can have a secure, safe space for you that you deserve, that aligns with your human rights as a trans person. I believe in you from one trans person to another. You can do this. It's very difficult to go through, but you've got this. Said, it's a really important conversation and it's a really personal topic. We really, really appreciate (laughs) you sharing all of this with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. It's so great that I'm able to speak to my community just all across the country. Said London is about to start grade 11 at St. John High School in New Brunswick. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. We really hope it doesn't come to that. And and I, I sincerely hope that people consider the safety of others if they're going to engage in activity like this and the potential consequences for that. Once again, the RCMP are asking convoy participants to stay away from active wildfire zones, this time in Yellowknife. More than 19,000 Yellowknife residents have been displaced for the past two weeks because of wildfires threatening the area. And although evacuation orders and a territory-wide state of emergency remain in effect, the RCMP in the Northwest Territories say about 50 vehicles were planning to head back to the city, ignoring police checkpoints along the way. 
Last week, convoy participants confronted police in the Shushwap region of B.C., also trying to get into areas under evacuation orders. And... We are looking at a more severe Atlantic hurricane season than we usually tend to see. Uh, And in large part, that's because of these record warm ocean waters in the Atlantic. As the cleanup continues in Florida and the U.S. Southeast, there are concerns that Idalia could be just the start of a dangerous hurricane season. Before it made landfall, Idalia took fewer than 24 hours to strengthen from a Category 1 to a Category 4 hurricane, which is an incredibly fast and concerning pace. The storm gained power from the warm water in the Atlantic, largely caused by climate change. The entire North Atlantic is suffering from a severe marine heat wave, which could provide unwanted fuel to future storms as we head into peak hurricane season. Still to come on day six, as the slinky turns 80, the story of the woman who made it famous. She's just this amazing woman who, you know, is so much more than the person who named the toy. I'm Stephanie Skanderis, in for Brent Bambury. The American Library Association says book ban requests at public schools and libraries hit a high in 2022. Last year, the Library Association says it got more than a thousand requests. That is a 70% increase from 2021. This is a big week for educators everywhere. But with public school book ban attempts now at a 21-year high across the United States, plus new restrictions on teaching black history, there are a lot of challenges for American teachers to contend with. There's already a lot of emotion going on at the beginning of any school year for any um, set of educators. But 2023, educators are entering the classroom with an additional level of anxiety. That's Toby Jenkins, a professor of higher education at the University of South Carolina. Attacks on curriculum and instruction, um, what teachers can teach, what they can say in the classroom, um, and who can report those things uh, if they feel that there's a violation. It's just causing or creating an environment, a really tense environment. Lately, Toby's work has revolved around the history and culture of hip-hop, and she says she's found concrete tools to respond to this challenging moment in academia. Back in the 1990s, uh, many hip-hop artists were attacked politically, from N.W.A. to Tupac Shakur. Uh, You know, many people were coming for their lyrics and were wanting to restrict them and and, and everything. And um, and if anything, it has served as a historical example of how you can sustain if you stand strong. Later this month, Toby will publish a book called The Hip-Hop Mindset, Success Strategies for Educators and Other Professionals. The number one tool is claiming your space. (laughs) Claiming your space is really about um, owning any space that you occupy and rejecting the ideas of, um, you know, imposter or, or renter or borrower to understand and to know that you absolutely belong there. So one of the examples that's most uh, present in my, my memory of what claiming space looks like in hip hop would be uh, Run DMC in the 1980s. Um, when they often took the stage uh, during the Fresh Fest, uh, they would start by acknowledging all of the incredible talent that had been on the stage. We had a whole lot of superstars on this stage here tonight, but I want y'all to know one thing. 
this is my house. What they were saying was that anywhere that I work, I work so well and I work so confidently that I own the environment. And I think that's a valuable sense of confidence that particularly educators need to to claim right now. This is our realm. You refuse to allow others whose expertise is outside of this realm uh, to, to come in and control what you know is important in the field of education. So there's ways to keep it real around the whole idea of instructional restriction. Even if you can't teach a particular topic, there's nothing stopping you from putting the legislation on the table and, um, and allowing students to research, debate, and dive deeper into the legislation itself that is preventing or restricting the teaching of Black history. Another really important aspect of hip-hop culture is the art of remixing. How do you take something and reimagine it in, in new and different ways? The, the books that are being banned, we can no longer provide those books. They're not in our, our libraries anymore. All right, so, so how do we rethink? getting those books in the hands of students. So how do we provide families and students with information on external resources, uh, like the, the Books Unbanned initiative, uh, where they're offering national access to libraries in order to, to give young people or communities access to banned books. Yo, check this out. Chocolate Boy, one of the Soul Brothers, number one, Pete Rock. And checking out Crate Digging. So Crate Digging is a critical part of the remix, but it is about sifting through old records to find that forgotten gem of a song that no one might remember, but you can rethink it, remix it, uh, pull it into a, a, a new song and, and breathe new life into it. So if we were to look back historically at how other leaders, other educators have responded in the past to such challenges, what have they done, and how can we build on that? In many ways, um, the very history that they're seeking to deny us teaching also has the answers to how we should respond. Toby Jenkins is a professor of higher education at the University of South Carolina. This week, officials in British Columbia gave an update on the number of properties severely damaged or fully destroyed by the McDougal Creek wildfire in the Okanagan, nearly 200 and counting. The Okanagan is one of the regions hit hardest by wildfires this year, and the impact is being felt everywhere. Okanagan tourism operators are registering big losses as the number of wildfire-related cancellations continues to grow. And the region's well-known wine industry also remains at the mercy of extreme weather events. 
So this is all combining to having an effect on uh, on our grape production. And uh, over the last five or six years, we've slowly seen a decrease up to 30% in what we should be getting off of what we know is planted. So we attribute it to uh, climate change. One big concern for BC's wine growers is the amount of wildfire smoke getting into vineyard grapes and bottled wines. It's known as smoke taint. The trick or trouble with with smoke taint is that it doesn't necessarily show up when you're uh, vinifying, when you're making the wine. So you're never really too sure until really it's in the bottle or when you're bottling. Cole Serrato is an assistant professor of food science and technology at Oregon State University. He's an expert on how wildfire smoke affects grapes and wine. And he runs the Smoked Wine and Grapes Chemistry Lab, which chemically tests grapes and wine for smoke impacts. Cole Serrato, hello and welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's just dive right into the science of this. What happens when smoke from wildfires first descends on where grapes are being grown. What's the impact of that first contact? So what's occurring during these wildfire events is that the chemicals that are in the air, it's the same chemicals that you smell. So if you have ever been close to a wildfire and you can smell it, or if you've ever sat around a campfire and you have that smell, what will happen is these chemicals will get into the skin of the grapes, adhere to the skin, and it's during the fermentation process, these chemicals will come back out into the wine and what you will often have this kind of ashy aftertaste, um, like it honestly tastes like smoked meat or anything like that. And it's often something that the winemakers aren't necessarily trying to produce. And it's something that the consumers aren't necessarily wanting to drink either. Well, are any of those chemical compounds dangerous or hazardous? Potentially in high concentrations, just like anything, but the concentrations that you would get it in uh, during a smoke event, uh, it's not necessarily that concentrated in the wine. You've tasted smoke-tainted wine, right? How would you describe it? What did it taste like? Um, Not that I've ever had this experience, but it's a bit like licking a day-old ashtray. (laughs) (laughs) It is a very unpleasant experience when it's at very high concentrations. And during the research phase of this too, we're often looking at it at the extremes. So we'll look at this at very high concentrations so that we understand the chemistry. And so for me, it can be very intense, but sometimes it can be a lot more subtle too, where it comes off as a slightly ashy aftertaste or slightly smoky. And if you're one of the lucky few, you might not taste it at all because there's a genetic component to how you taste this chemistry as well. Listen, I can tell you, Cole, I've also tasted smoke-tainted wine. I lived in Australia during the last really bad bushfire season, and I tried a bottle that was marketed as smoky wine. I was not one of the lucky few that couldn't taste it. I tasted it. It was very strong. Like your description of licking the ashtray, yeah, it's such an intense flavor. Not my thing at all. But I mean, there are people that are into smoky flavors in scotches and things like that. Do you think there might be a niche market out there for this? Yeah, uh, I think there could be. There are a lot of people who do enjoy, like you said, the the smoky scotches and that sort of thing. Um, So potentially there could be a market for this. And even I've seen it here in the Pacific Northwest where people will label it as smoky. No no winemaker is going to put this on the shelves if it's not up to the quality they want, but sometimes they might have that market they're shooting for. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I think there might be, but it's still a little early to say. Yeah. And I guess even if there is a market for this, it might be kind of a small one with such a specific kind of taste. 
What do you think the winemakers can do? Is there anything wineries can do if they know they've got a batch of grapes that have been tainted by wildfire smoke? Sure. It could be as easy as, say, blending it with a non-smoke impacted wine and just getting it below the levels that we are able to taste it. That would be on the easy end. Low impact, the fires were far enough away that it wasn't very intense in the, the resulting wine. Some of the wines, it is a lot more challenging. A lot of the techniques that we look at nowadays, uh, not only do they pull out the bad compounds, compounds we don't want, but they also pull out the compounds that we do want, things associated with some of the, say, floral notes or fruitier notes. The color, it can even be impacted. So when we're talking techniques like reverse osmosis or charcoal or anything like that, you know, it's a double-edged sword. And so what we're trying to do right now is do some more research in order to give winemakers a kit of tools that they will be able to access depending on how much smoke they have that year. From the research side of things too, we are looking into more specific ways to pull out just those compounds associated with smoke, leaving all the rest. And that just takes a little bit more time. It takes a lot more work, um, but we're still in the early phases of that too. Hmm. And you've actually found a way to simulate wildfire smoke in order to better measure its impact on grapes and wine, like a laboratory experiment. Can you describe what you do? Uh, absolutely. And so what we had done was went into our vineyard, constructed a scaffold that went around three grapevines at a time and covered that with some plastic sheeting, taped everything up, put some fans in there to swirl all the air around and then piped in a lot of smoke. Oh, wow. And so the smoke that we have is specific to the Pacific Northwest. Um, I've seen another uh, setup that was very similar in uh, a Canadian research group was doing something. It's very similar across the board to what, how we pipe in the smoke and get those high concentrations for a long amount of time so that we don't impact other grapes as well. Huh. Uh, we know that here in Canada, in British Columbia, the losses to the wine industry due to wildfires have been significant. What about where you are? Have you, have you been able to measure the impact on the wine industry in Oregon or the surrounding area? There was some research that had come out recently about the economic impact. So for the West Coast in the United States and even a little bit into Canada, I believe, the 2020 wildfires were very intense. And so that year alone, I think West Coast United States, over a billion dollars Wow, is what I think the price tag came out to. And unfortunately, with the wine industry, when we're talking about the economic impacts, we're not just talking about a year's worth of loss because of the quality of aging that goes into wine. So as long as that vintage is aging, that is a loss for the following year and the following year. So we're looking at billions of dollars lost over the course of potentially three, four years. But we're hoping to be able to improve the overall quality of wine with more data, with more research. Cole, your work is really fascinating. How did you get into this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of luck and I was very fortunate with this. Uh, I came from Florida where uh, there's not a lot of vineyards. Not known for its wine growing. Not at all. No, I grew up surrounded by orange groves, not by vineyards. And so finishing grad school, it, it was tough. And when I was looking for places to go after grad school, the types of jobs I was looking for, the locations I was looking at, it was a tough time. And this job popped up and I was like, oh, that that just sounds fun. Like after a very intense time in graduate school, I found a job that looked fun and I was just 
Like, I don't know if I'm going to be qualified for this, but let's find out. I'm not going to say no for them. So I applied for this and I had the skills for it. And, you know, within the first year or so, I knew this is this is an area and a location that I absolutely love. I love doing this research. I love the area that I'm in and helping the industry. It's full of absolutely wonderful people. And my colleagues that I've got to work with all over the world at this point are just fantastic. And so again, like I think there was a lot of luck in the timing of this and uh, the people that I get to work with was extremely fortunate. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are pretty grateful for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for speaking with us about it. Absolutely. Thank you. Cole Serrato is an assistant professor of food science and technology at Oregon State University. What walks downstairs, a loner in pairs, and makes a slinkity sound. A spring, a spring, a marvelous thing. Everyone knows it's slinky, it's slinky, it's slinky. For fun, it's a wonderful toy. It's fun for a girl and a boy. You're going to have that song in your head all day now, and I'm not sorry. This past Wednesday was National Slinky Day, and this year it was a big one to celebrate because this year marks the 80th anniversary of the Slinky's invention, which happened completely by accident. So there was a gentleman named Richard James. He worked as an engineer in Pennsylvania, and in 1943, he discovered a coil of wire that as it fell off the counter, did this kind of cool movement, uh, this slinky movement down. And he thought, hmm, maybe this could be a toy. That's Monica Smith. And I'm the acting deputy director for the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. The Lemelson Center is part of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Our main mission is to try to encourage everyone to see themselves as proactive, inventive problem solvers who can help change the world. Now, as far as inventions go, the Slinky does not look like a toy that would last for eight decades or change the world. I think sometimes actually simplicity is part of the magic of toys. And Slinky has this beauty of being simple. I think you see it at first and you think, what is this? It's a coil of wire. And then you lift up part of it and, and let it flop over and suddenly it makes this kind of fun, intriguing, slinky movement down the stairs or down an incline, and you start to play with it. And it's, you know, it's, again, it's a simple toy. It's inexpensive, so anyone can afford one. Yep. It's just a spring, played with for generations. But it's not just the toy itself that sucks you in. People remember the slinky um, jingle, which has got to be one of the most effective earworms you've ever heard. It's what really helped make the Slinky a success was its marketing, including that jingle. So while Richard James may have invented the toy, its real success was thanks to his wife, Betty James. Betty James and her husband met at Pennsylvania State University, and he then became an engineer and she became a housewife and they eventually had six children and when he came home in 1943 with this idea for this 
metal toy. She was the one who came up with the name Slinky. She actually looked up uh, words in the dictionary and thought that the definition of Slinky, which was uh, sleeky and sinuous, uh, was perfect for this idea. And so they put in some small amount of money, uh, made some, and started to try to market them. The toy didn't take off right away. But then in November of 1945, Betty and Richard demonstrated the Slinky at a Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia. They sold 400 Slinkies in an hour and a half. To date, more than 300 million Slinkies have been sold on every continent around the world except Antarctica, all thanks in huge part to Betty. She was really the person behind all of the marketing ideas for it. And most importantly, she took over leadership of the company um, around 1960 when her husband left her and her six kids to move to Bolivia to join a religious sect or cult in her view. And she took over a company that was starting to struggle a bit. The, the initial fad had ended, but she kickstarted it again. She moved the company back near her family so she could continue to raise her children. Betty James was a single mother of six who ran James Industries for four decades. When she died in 2008, the headline in the New York Times read, Betty James, who named the Slinky Toy, is dead at 90. But she did so much more than that. She was the one who thought of and was inspired to come up with different variations on the toy to keep it relevant. Because of an idea that was brought to her, she was the one who... Uh, helped get it marketed and into the Toy Story movie that helped to rejuvenate its popularity. Um, so she's just this amazing woman who, you know, is so much more than the person who named the toy. The Slinky was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in 2000. And over the years, it's had many uses as a musical instrument, an antenna used during the Vietnam War. It's even been used for experiments on the space shuttle Discovery. And like the Slinky, the legacy of Betty James also lives on. She's a great example of someone who, other than within perhaps the toy industry, and she has been acknowledged by the Toy Industry Hall of Fame, her story is not well known. You, you know about the product Slinky. If you look it up, you may read about her husband inventing it. Most likely when you hear her name or see her name in print, it's about her naming the Slinky. But there's very little about her business acumen again and her, her ability to, to lead the company to great success um, over you know multiple generations, which is really quite impressive. Um, but this is true for, for many women who have been overlooked and undervalued in the invention and innovation ecosystem. So I think I want to leave with a plug for women inventors and innovators in the past who have been often sort of overlooked or dismissed even by a primarily male uh, media um, and to think about the roles that women can play and have played for a long time, both in business as well as in the home, that are really important and impactful and should be an inspiration, um, not only for young women, but for all of us. Monica Smith is the acting deputy director of the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. Still to come on day six, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly rock and roll news quiz.
Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. Granted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie Skanderis in for Brent Banbury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day 6. Okay, pop quiz. What do Elton John, the Rolling Stones, John Lennon, and Freddie Mercury have in common? The answer is Tony King. He's one of rock and roll history's best-kept secrets. His behind-the-scenes life as a music promoter and executive, especially in the 1960s and 70s, is a thing of legend. Tony King is now in his 80s. His memoir is called The Tastemaker, my life with the legends and geniuses of rock music. He spoke to Brent Banbury in March. The book is called The Tastemaker, and your own sense of taste and style seems to be something that was with you from a very early age. Were you born with that sense of taste? Where, where do you think it comes from? I was born to be curious about it, and I pursued it. When I was 14, 15 years old, I was fascinated by Tennessee Williams. That's not average for mm. a 15-year-old boy living in a provincial British town, you know. Going to the movies a lot. I, I loved the movies. I loved the Tennessee Williams films, the fugitive kind, Suddenly Last Summer, um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, all those wonderful films. But then more than that, I love the musicals. I love the Doris Day musicals. I loved Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I loved Carmen Jones. So I immersed myself in things that were creative. And then I discovered paintings and, and art. And I would go to museums. And one of the joys of going around the world with the Rolling Stones was I was able to go to museums in, in different parts of the world and do things that I would never have had the chance to do, you know. There's a wonderful museum in Lisbon where I remember taking Charlie Watts to it and Charlie and I really, really loved it, you know. And I've always soaked up anything like that or in, in music and creatively in life, you know. I've always soaked it up. Is it true, Tony, that, that when Charlie Watts, the drummer for the Rolling Stones, first met you, he said, that's the gayest person I've ever seen? That's true. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> I saved his cat. His cat was injured and it was in the hallway of where I was working with Andrew Oldham and Charlie and Shirley had a flat along the corridor and I found this injured cat and I said to Andrew, oh, there's this cat, it's not in a very good way and Andrew said, oh my God, that's Charlie and Shirley's cat, they'll be so upset. 
He said, is there anything you could do? I said, I took it to the vet and the vet said, it'll have to go be put down. I said, no, 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 I can't do it. can't allow that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, anybody else? He said, there is a guy on the other side of town does miracles. So he, <laughs> he actually put the leg back together and he, like a jigsaw puzzle, mended it. And then when I came down the corridor, Charlie said to Shirley, that's the gayest person I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> But you were empathetic about the cat. That your sense of empathy is something that giant stars must have caught up on, because you were so successful dealing with people who must have enormous egos. You know, these these are not necessarily the, the easiest people to get along with, and yet you do seem to get along with people. And when you met the Beatles, you say that you found John Lennon to be the most intimidating. But it's Lennon who later brings you in to help manage his career during a key period in his life when he was separated from Yoko and he's he's trying to refocus on, on his music. What did you most like about John Lennon and what scared you the most about him? The scary part was the early John Lennon, not the latter day John Lennon. When I used to see John in London in the Beatle days, he could be very sharp tongued. And if he decided he wanted to put you down, he could do it very swiftly. He was very clever with words. I was always respectful of that, and I always kept a distance. I wasn't looking forward to working with him, to be honest with you. When he said he was coming to Los Angeles and wanted me to help him with his album, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm so nervous of him and the way he can be. And then all of a sudden, when I met him, he wasn't like that at all. He was very sweet and we had this very intense conversation about our families his aunt julia who raised him and his mother who got killed and he heard the sound of the motorbike which killed her and i was telling him about my family and my upbringing and and that brought us close together we both had these strange or different family upbringings you know and once we connected on that we were off to the races we just liked being with each other and we and a sense of humor yeah is very important with all these people they all had a great sense of humor one of the first stories you tell in the book is how you you helped to bring john lennon and elton john together on stage in 1974 in at the madison square garden show How close did that great rock and roll experience come to not happening? Well, if John had not had a number one record, it wouldn't have happened. Elton called me up on his tour and he said, will John do Madison Square Garden? So I called John up and I said, we've got a big ask from Elton. John said, what is it? I said, he wants you to appear with him at Madison Square Garden. What do you say? John said, if my record gets to number one, I'll do it. It got to number one, but one week only, but it still got to number one, and John did it. But if it hadn't got to number one, that concert would not have happened. And that was one of the last times that John Lennon appeared live on stage, wasn't it? Madison Square Garden was the last big show that he ever did. The last big public performance. But you took him to see Elton John live so that he would understand what Elton's shows are like. And when Elton came on stage, he knew where John was sitting next to you, and he curtsied. He curtsied to you, didn't he? Oh, this was when we went to Boston to see the show. And he came up in this ridiculous outfit, which was little shorts and a bib with a heart on it. 
he looked up at us and he curtsied to us. And John was hysterical. He thought it was so funny. Elton did this little curtsy. And then, of course, you know, we saw him later on the plane on the way back to New York. And then we, we knew then we had to do some rehearsal because John was kind of blown away by what he'd seen. He said, oh, my God, the sound. I've never heard sound like that. It's amazing. He said, when we played uh, Shea Stadium with the Beatles, we, we couldn't hear a thing. We had these silly little amps and we, we couldn't hear anything. We, he said we could have sung in another language and it wouldn't have mattered because <laughs> no one could hear it, you know. He knew Elton had a really sharp band too and, and it was going to be a good show and everybody had to show up and do their best and they did. Is it true that you and Mick Jagger once lip-synced to the Supremes at a party? It is indeed. Um, I, In fact, Mick was my backup singer. <laughs> I was Diana Ross and Mick was Mary, Mary Wilson and uh, Keith was uh, Flo Bellard. <laughs> they were my backups and I lip-synced to Stop in the Name of Love. And the audience was Paul McCartney sitting in a peacock chair that Andrew Oldham had. Paul McCartney still reminds me to this day, if I see him sometimes, he'll tease me and remind me of my performance as Diana Ross. <laughs> I, it was quite well known, my performance of Diana Ross. <laughs> Tony, were, were you lip syncing when you sang I Left My Heart in San Francisco with Elton John at a Christmas party? No, we were singing live. So I started singing it. It was sort of, I left my heart in San Francisco, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And when we got to the end, when I come home to you, Elton joined in. And, we, and when we got to the crescendo, York, that golden sun will shine. <laughs> we were like really enjoying it. We just did this kind of duet together. It was very funny. Actually, at this point, when I did this duet with him, he was Reg. He wasn't Elton. But you worked with Elton throughout his career. I and mean, when you began to work with him and, and actually assisting him in his career, he was still Reg then. And then for his Las Vegas show in 2011, you made many tweaks and suggestions to help him have the best possible show. Beginning with his opening number, he wanted to open with Rocket Man. You told him to do something else. What happened? Yeah, I listened, I listened to the Rocket Man, and he had a very long version of it, too. And I said to Keith Bradley, his tour director, I said, this is not going to work. He can't come out and do a very dramatic, slow number like that. It's just not going to work in Vegas. Vegas want Vegas. <laughs> they want showbiz, you know. So I said to Elton, I think it would be better if you did the bitches back because the bitches back sums it up. You know, you're <laughs> back in Vegas and it's a great number and you're the bitch and you're back. And he said, good, we'll do it. I mean, we had known each other for so many years, since 1967, and he respected my taste and he respected my truth. If he didn't agree, fine, but most of the times he did, and he would ask my opinion on many matters over the years, and I was always pretty straightforward, and I am straightforward. I'm a straightforward person. I don't 
deal in half-truths. You know, my lovely dad, my grandfather who raised me, his great maxim was, don't tell lies and don't get involved with the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the truths that you do tell in this book is about your own HIV status. And, and you do say in the book, that this is the first time that some people who know you uh, will find out that you're HIV positive. Why was it important for you to do that? Because it's time that people just owned up to it and to, time to let people know you can live with it and it's not going to kill you. You know, there was a time when that wasn't the case. And I lost a lot of friends and I witnessed a lot of death and I sat around a lot of bedsides. And I went to a lot of memorial services and I went to a lot of very, very sad occasions. And I lived through the worst of it. So when I got the virus myself, it was the worst day of my life because I thought I was going to die like that. And I knew there was some medication, but I didn't. I had not researched it because I didn't feel like I needed to because yeah. I was okay. And then, of course, I wasn't. So then I did do the medication and the medication saved my life. Mm -hmm. But I still wasn't ready to tell people because I had a sense of... I was ashamed of myself for quite a long time. But when I did the book, I thought... However many years I've got, I'll take. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm over the line anyway. I'm 81 next month. It must be extremely rewarding to be able to unburden the secret that you held for so many years in this book. Let me ask you about Freddie Mercury, because you spent a lot of time with Freddie. How much do you miss Freddie Mercury? An awful lot. Elton and I miss Freddie the most. Freddie was part of the gang. You know, and Freddie had the most fantastic sense of humor. I mean, well, he was hilarious. And he had such a great love of life and such a zest for fun. And he was a very social person. He loved to throw big parties. And he always used to come up with sort of mad things. You know, one night we were in a bar in New York and he started us. I want to start a list of B-movie actresses. <laughs> and so we started this list. I've still got the list. We went through like, listing B-movie actresses all night long in this bar. And then we got other people involved. And Elton had to send a list in. And Charlie Watson, Shirley <laughs> sent a list in. Oh, I know the one that Freddie liked was called Marlene Dimanjo. <laughs> that was his favorite. Oh, I love that name, Marlene Dimanjo, he said to me. You talk about Freddie Mercury at the end of his life, and you say how brave he was. Can you tell us just a little bit about the last moments you spent with him? Well, uh, he was very, very ill, and he was bedridden. When I first saw him, he was still able to go out a little bit, and he took me out for lunch because he wanted to take me to this place that made delicious shepherd's pie. Bought me two lovely chests of drawers, which I've got here now. And then he got sicker and, and wasn't able to do that and obviously had to avoid the press. He spent a lot of time in bed and when he was in bed, he bought pictures from auctions at Christie's. He used to look at the catalogues and he'd choose something that he wanted and he'd get someone to go and put a bid in for him and the picture, whatever it was, was brought back to the house and he would just sit there and admire it and it was it was very moving to watch his reaction and he was so noble that's the word i've used quite a few times but he was very noble
and he was fantastic. I miss him terribly. I miss him terribly. In 1973, you dressed up as Queen Elizabeth II and appeared in a TV advert for John Lennon's Mind Games album. Do you think you'll be dressing up as Queen Camilla anytime soon? I don't think so, because there's only one Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you're going to dress up as the Queen, there was only one Queen. And Camilla, God bless her, she'll be Queen, but she'll never be the Queen. <laughs> Tony King, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for talking to us, and, and I, I enjoyed your book so much. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope I've given you decent enough answers. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, you have. Thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye now. Tony King's memoir is The Tastemaker, My Life with the Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music. That interview first aired in March. Rift from the Headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a Day 6 tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Stuck in them 20 somethings. Stuck in them 20 somethings. Good luck on them 20 somethings. Good luck on them 20 The Spice Girls with Spice Up Your Life, XTC with the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead, and SZA with 20-something. Amanda Nolan of Winnipeg guessed the headline we were looking for. Starbucks Pumpkin Spice Latte turns 20. Congratulations, Amanda. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. What is the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer, put Rift from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Rift from the headlines. That's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfu Tedessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. I'm Stephanie Skanderis, in for Brent Bambury. Thanks for listening to Day 6. Proud of you. That was a clap.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.